Hey guys, what's up? Welcome back to another video. Today I'm gonna do some Q&A. So I got a bunch of questions people have sent in, audio questions. I'm just gonna try to roll through them back to back, try to be as concise as possible in my answers and see how many I can get done in one video here today. All right, so here is the first question. I think it's about criticism. Hi Clay. Um, my question is really about um, criticism. It's something I've been having trouble with in my life just how to tell when the criticism someone is giving me is a valid thing that I really need to listen to and I can learn something from or when it's just not true and they're making assumptions about me or you know maybe they're criticizing me sort of as a way to sabotage me and I have a lot of trouble like figuring out one from the other and if there was just like some sort of shortcut so I could spend some less less time thinking about it, that would be uh, very helpful. So I'm just wondering if you have figured out a way to deal with it. All right. Thanks very much for that question. So it seems like the question is, how do you know when criticism is valid? So I think there's a couple types of criticism that people could give. One type might be about something you've made or your work or like let's say you're an artist and you make some art. Let's say you're a writer and you write something or you make a video or let's say you start a business and you produce a product. Like something that you've made, somebody might criticize this creation of yours. The other type might be an actual criticism of you, yourself, or maybe your ability to relate to other people. So those two types of criticism I think are a little bit different. Like let's say you're a writer and you write something and then you get one negative comment and you just like dirty delete it, you erase it from existence. I think in the past, I used to have that tendency. I didn't take criticism well. You know, and you might get 10 compliments, and then you get this one criticism, and all of a sudden you get scared that you're actually a, an awful writer and you delete it. So for those types of situations, I like to remember this Theodore Roosevelt quote. And it's basically, if somebody's not in the arena with you, don't take criticism from them. Don't take criticism from people who are sitting up in the seats, like the, the, the cheap seats, and they just boo. Um, I can often tell whether somebody's criticism is valid because they will give reasons for it. Like, let's say another writer, let's say you're a writer, you write some stuff. Another writer that's maybe a better writer than you gives you some advice or criticism. I would probably listen to that advice. Um, well, let's say somebody who's not, you know, somebody isn't a writer, they're, they're not in the arena. So in the arena is the people who are doing what you're doing. They understand the complications. They understand the challenges of doing that, right? If somebody's not in the arena, it's best not to listen to them because they really just don't know is the thing. I think good criticism will come with reasons, facts, data about why you are incorrect. If it's just a nasty remark, more often than not, it's just not valid. Okay, the second part of the question would be, you know, personal criticisms. You know, maybe your friends, family members, maybe your significant other criticizes you in some way and you don't know if that's valid or not. But here's the thing, in like a relationship, if somebody's criticizing you, I like to ask this question. So this person might be criticizing you in a certain area. Would you take advice from that person in that area? Like let's say somebody is giving you relationship advice and then you look at them 
and they've had nothing but failed relationships. They've never really had a successful relationship. Really, upon further examination, they know nothing about what a successful relationship is, and yet they are criticizing your ability to have a relationship. That's what I mean. I, I would take that advice with a grain of salt and possibly ignore it. But if you know somebody had an amazing relationship, let's say they're a relationship coach, let's say they're a counselor who specializes in relationships, and now they give you a criticism, that, that means something different. Criticism is hard, and a lot of people have trouble with it. But the other thing that I've noticed is that the more critical a person is, usually the less valid their opinion really is. A person who's in the arena with you, a person who's caring and communicative, will find ways to deliver this information in a caring, respectful way. And if it's delivered in disrespectful ways, uncaring, manipulative ways, then that's usually just a sign that that person can probably be ignored uh, for their criticism. So thanks for that question. All right, next question here from Danielle. Let's play it. Hi, Clay. I know this is a really basic question, but do you have any advice on how to um, make good quality friends? I find that I have like a bunch of acquaintances, but they never really go anywhere. And the few times I have had best friends, they were good in the beginning and then things got toxic and I had to jet. I was so out of there. So I'm seeing if you have any idea whether it's how to detect when people are, are a good match for me and they're calm and they're kind. Like how do you how do you actually find people like that? Because my problem is in the beginning, everything's great. Um, and then they sh basically take off the mask and I just scream and run. And I just would like to be with people who are good and honest. Thank you. So I think this question really is asking, how do you identify like good friend material early in the game without having to like go down this long road of this person to find out that they're toxic? Manipulation is a big thing that I look for. Do I see manipulation from this person? Another thing I look for is, do I see a victim mentality? Because I, I find that covert narcissists, it's a type of person I've been attracted to in the past. I want to avoid narcissists. Covert narcissists love to play the victim. So here you've got real victims that look like victims, but then you've also got these covert narcissists who are playing the victim to get attention. I really try to identify those people right off the bat because I, I don't like people with victim mentalities. Another thing though is I try to find people right off the bat that I can have a conversation with. For, so like for myself, what do I want out of a friend? I mean, I don't have a lot of deep friends, but. I want a couple. I want like a deep connection. Somebody I have understanding and acceptance with and somebody who, you know, accepts me for who I am and understands me. Um, there's good communication in the relationship. But also somebody I, I respect intellectually. I, I, I want to have good intellectual conversations with people, things that I think are interesting, things that, that matter. And I find for myself... That's a really quick way to weed people out. If I just start talking or ask their opinion on some you know, abstract concept that I'm thinking about, I mean, a lot of people look at me with these like glazed over eyes at the things that I like to talk about. I'm like talking about you know, psychology and philosophy and a lot of things that a lot of people aren't really thinking about. So right off the bat, if somebody likes to talk about these types of topics and we could talk for half an hour, an hour about some 
obscure thing and this person is giving me ideas and I'm giving them ideas, that's a really good sign. So I look for that now. I think I used to befriend people simply because they wanted to be friends with me. They're just like adopting me. And here I am introverted in my house and I'm not going anywhere, but here's, an, here's somebody who has adopted me and asked me to go out. So, okay, I'll just go out with them. I'm trying to eliminate that. You know, unless, I think it's hard to find people that are both intellectual and like willing and able to have emotional intimacy. I think it's rare, that's EQ and IQ. I think it's rare to find people that have both. Uh, so I look for that now in a friend. Does this person have a good IQ and a good EQ? It's not that I want to be elitist and only talk to smart people, but the thing is, I've noticed that the things I like to talk about, the things that build the relationship at all, are usually people that are intelligent. So what I've noticed is the most interesting people to me at this point are doing things that are interesting. They're, they're often on some kind of a mission. So some of my closest friends, like, they're on these missions to do these things, to accomplish these things. They're driven, passionate people. So, you know, I look for that. I just look for people who are doing interesting things and I find them interesting. So the flip side of this, though, is that, you know, if somebody is doing some really cool, interesting thing, I myself have to be interesting to them to even, you know, trigger this relationship. So the reality is if you want to find good friends, you not only have to find the people that you like, but you have to become interesting to them. What does that mean? That means for me, it is being a passionate person, being a person who has ideas and thoughts and isn't scared to, you know, put those out in the world. I think a lot of people, they're too scared to put their ideas, to put their art, to put their work out into the world. They're just sitting there and they're self-conscious, too scared, and they work their nine to five, and in the end, they're not very interesting. So it's hard to attract those really interesting people because they're also looking for those interesting people. They look uniqueness and people who are doing cool stuff. So it's something I remember. If you want to find good friends, first be a good friend, be an interesting person. Try to identify the qualities you really want out of a friend and then try to really find those right in the beginning, like make some kind of a test. I don't want to make it sound like I'm loyalty testing people, but you know, I like to talk about psychology, so I'll just ask a person about psychology or philosophy or you know, um, religion is another thing that I like to talk about. And if somebody is unwilling or doesn't like to talk about that stuff, they just sort of shut off, you know, Maybe they might make a good acquaintance, but we're never going to be good friends, unfortunately. So, and I'm just willing to admit that at this point. Anyway, I hope that helps. All right, next up we have Mina. So let's listen. Hi, Clay. This is Mina. Greetings from Chicago. Um, my question will piggyback the great question you got on vague hope. Do you believe in fate, destiny, luck, coincidence? Um, do you believe that a man creates his own luck or that our lives are in some way predestined? All right, so do I believe in fate, luck, coincidence, predestination, these types of things? So I definitely believe in hard work, obviously. If you work hard towards a goal, you invest in that, you can have some kind of good outcome. And a lot of times people will accuse you of being lucky if you do that. Uh, sometimes I think the definition of luck itself is incorrect. Sometimes hard work just produces good results. 
I think other times though, there actually is luck incorporated. And if you read a book like The Outliers, pretty popular book, you'll see, you know, there's, there's people that have worked really hard and really invested into things, but then they've also, you know, been in the right place at the right time. And then it produces this like super result, right? Like, you know, like somebody like Steve Jobs, super smart guy, super driven, but then he also happened to be in the right place at the right time, you know, just at the beginning of the tech boom, lived in Silicon Valley, like he had neighbors that were like the president of IBM, and like he was, he was in the right place at the right time, and he was smart and driven, produced this, you know, billionaire. So, do I believe in luck? Of course. Um, do I believe in fate and destiny? I think, personally, that a lot of times people confuse coincidence as fate. So coincidence is a statistically unlikely thing that actually happens. Here's the thing about statistics that I think a lot of people miss. Let's say there's a one in one million chance of some event happening. But then there's a million such events that could happen. So hopefully that makes sense. It's like, let's say there's a million different things that could happen right now that we would think are super unlikely. So one million things that each have a one in one million chance. Statistics says that basically it's a statistical guarantee that one of those things will happen and we will experience that unlikely thing, one of them, right? And then after the fact, when we view that event as a single event, it appears almost impossible that it happened. I heard, I read an article one time and it was like, we are all guaranteed to have a two or three like astronomically unlikely things happen to us in our lifetime. But I think there's a lot of people who maybe don't have quite the, the mind to really fully understand that. Um, they're just not very mathematical, they're not very scientific, they don't understand the scientific method. And so it's really easy now to mix that with confirmation bias and be like, see, God did that for me. Oh, see, it was, it was destined, destined to be. And I think that makes people feel comfortable. But do I believe that many of those things are fate and destiny? I, I don't believe that. I mean, I, I guess I can't say it's not. I can't say for certain it's not. But do I believe that? No. But I do believe in statistics. I believe in uncertainty. I believe in unlikely things happening now and then. So hopefully that answers the question. All right, next up I have Catherine. Hi Clay, my name is Catherine and I'm a 22-year-old INFJ. Um, my question for you is actually about self-love and self-acceptance. I'm kind of curious about your whole journey or um, aspects of it that was like difficult for you. Um, I'm going through this journey myself right now and I've actually found myself wanting to be distant from, you know, certain people and uh, romantic relationships in particular, just because I want to grow and develop myself on my own. Um, and I was also wondering how you dealt with the guilt of doing that, um, you know, the guilt of turning people away or uh, the guilt within your friendships for not always being that shoulder to cry on um, and things of that nature. Thanks so much. All right, thanks for that question. And something I've massively struggled with in my life and something that I feel like that I finally do have a handle on. All through my 20s, I, I felt like I owed everybody something. You know what I mean? I, I wanted to be everything to everybody. At this point in my life, I, I say this to myself and I remember this, I don't owe anybody anything except my kids. I do owe them stuff. 
but everybody else, I don't really owe anybody anything. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to respond to that text message that someone just sent me. I don't have to call somebody back. I don't have to show somebody respect if I don't want to. I don't have to have somebody in my life. I don't have to be polite. I don't have to even talk to a person. If somebody talks to me and I think they're a manipulative narcissist, I don't have to say anything back. I can just walk away. So there's guilt associated with learning how to do that. And that's not to say I'm just a jerk to everybody, because uh, I'm not. I still struggle with it, and I still you know, try to be polite and whatever. But the underlying motivation now is I do things because I want to. I am respectful because I want to, not because I have to be. I don't have to do it. So that's what I would recommend for you. First of all, realize you don't owe anybody anything, especially if you don't have kids. You don't owe anybody anything. You know, even your parents, you know, I think it's good to be respectful to your parents. And I think if you have a healthy relationship with your parents, then that's great. You should pursue that and nurture that. But if you are in a relationship with your parents and they are manipulative to you, if they are, you know, toxic, you don't owe them anything and you have the right to leave. You have the right to walk away. So I think a lot of guilt comes from culture especially if you've grown up in a religious situation, there's all these expectations that are placed on you, which are basically thou shalts, all these things that you're supposed to do. And a really good video that you could go watch that I did was the one on Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, the three stages of life. And it's the camel, the lion, and the child. The camel stage is just all about doing all the things that everybody wants you to do. And then when you get to the lion and then eventually the child and how you can basically become free of that, Here's one example of something you can do to practice. Stop apologizing so much. You know, if you don't message somebody back in three days, don't apologize for that. The fact that you are even responding at all should be a gift to that person. View it that way. You don't owe that person a response in one day. If you don't want to respond, then don't respond at all. And it all comes back to that thing. You don't owe anybody anything. And the more you can say that to yourself, the more you can internalize that, I think the more the guilt will go away. It's like, oh, you didn't respond to me in three days. It's like, well, I, I don't have to respond to you in three days. You're not my master. I'm not your slave. You really want to get away from that obligation living where you're just doing things because you think you have to. You think somebody expects you to do it. Some external moral code tells you that you have to do that. So hopefully that helps. All right, next question from Janneke in the Netherlands. Let's listen. Hi, Clay. This is uh, Janneke from the Netherlands. My question is about uh, developing uh, our extrovert sensing uh, skills. For instance, I just recently moved and I have all these boxes standing in my house and I would like to just snap and have everything in place so that I can go on with my life and especially do uh, the things I like to do and not worrying about all those uninteresting things that just need to be done. So can you, um, can you talk about developing uh, our extrovert sensing uh, skills and how, how, how did you work th with that? All right, thanks for that question. So right off the bat, my initial question or thought would be, is this really about extroverted sensing or is this just you know not wanting to do mundane stuff that you don't want to do? I mean, I have 
lots of that kind of stuff. How do you get these things done? Is that a quality, like a personality quality, like an INFJ quality? It seems like for me, I'm often so focused on what I want to do, my goals, that I, I hate all the like day-to-day bookkeeping related tasks of life. So this kind of sounds like that. I, I could give you a few ideas on how I deal with that. So I batch process everything and I try to force myself to do it. So like I come home from a trip and I have to unpack. I just try to do it right there. Because if I don't do it, you know, I'll put the bag in the corner and then I'll, it'll just never happen, right? Um, you know, things like bookkeeping for my business. I hire somebody to do it, so I don't have to do it. Taxes. You know, once a year I got to go and do my taxes and it's just agonizing. Like I, I, I really don't like doing that stuff, but you know, I book it, I pick a day and I spend the whole day and I do it. You know, even things like opening mail for me is actually very challenging. And, you know, I'm trying to get better at this, but I have been known to put all my mail in a pile and not open it for six months. And all of a sudden I'm opening mail when I'm doing my taxes and I'm opening stuff from like six months ago. Um, Kind of embarrassed to say that. I mean, I have all my bills coming through, you know, email and stuff. So it's usually just all this other stuff, right? But I will batch process my my mail. So once a month, once every two months, <laughs> if I can get to it, I will, you know, tackle that big pile of mail and deal with it. I sort of prefer to batch process things rather than, you know, just constantly be doing it. Like my email, I will do that as well. Like I don't like email usually. So every Friday, I will tackle my email box and try to get through it. So... How do you unpack those boxes? I really think it's about batch processing. It's about, okay, you know what? On Friday morning, I'm going to spend three hours and I'm going to get this house unpacked and you just do it. You put it in your calendar even. Um, If you just wait for it to happen, if you have a similar personality as me that just doesn't want to deal with that mundane stuff, it's probably not going to happen. You actually have to focus and do it. As far as extroverted sensing and how you can work on it, I can talk about that here. And also, Terry Sullivan asked a similar question as this, so I'm just going to kind of answer both those questions sort of at once here. But if you are an INFJ or an INTJ, you have inferior extroverted sensing. It means that if we're healthy and we're in a good state of mind, we can use extroverted sensing in a good way. But if we're tired or we're not healthy or whatever, it can kind of become this thing that we can trip up on. And then if you look at other personalities like INFPs or anybody that doesn't have extroverted sensing in their top four functions, they can also be quite bad at extroverted sensing. INFJs can be good at it, but it's the inferior function. So, you know, it's something that we can develop, I think is the key. If we don't develop it, we can become weak in it. We kind of just sort of ignore it. But if we develop it, we can become quite good at it. So what is extroverted sensing? Extroverted sensing is viewing everything that's happening in the external world. So I look around. I see these trees. I see a bird chirping. Like this is extroverted sensing. I see what people are doing. I see what people are doing that works. I observe. I'd be like, oh, this person's doing this and that's working. Extroverted sensing is also kind of everything in your physical environment, like even eating properly, you know, taking care of your body, exercising. So how do you work on extroverted sensing? For me, it's about 
concentrating on these things in the external world. You know, take care of your body first, first of all. Move your body, do work out, do some kind of sport. You know, help your body be healthy. Eat properly, that's another thing. So that's a very extroverted sensing activity to make and prepare food. You're looking at it, you're using your senses, you're tasting, you're observing. So extroverted sensing is all about using your senses in the external world. It could be as simple as going on a walk. And while you're on that walk, don't just be lost in thought about you know, some topic that you've been pondering, but actually look around you, observe what's around you. Like there's a dog over there playing in the park. Try to sit on a bench and just take in what's in your field of vision. So this is kind of a meditation technique that I've, I've tried uh, to do. Um, in order to strengthen this, but if you actually just sit there and just try to take in the sensory environment, don't try to think about it, don't try to judge it. That's the other thing is don't attach judgments to your sensory experiences. I think my tendency is to be like, I see something and immediately go into this like intuitive process of evaluating it and thinking about it and trying to produce some kind of a you know, conclusion about it. But is it possible just to sit there and observe with no judgment? Something I try to do. I'm not an expert at it, but it is something that I'm working on. All right, next up, we got a question from Jolina, I believe. Hey, Clay. So I just watched your INFJ door slam video. And first of all, I just want to say thank you for making the video. As always, it's very insightful. Um, my second thing is... I think, and my question will start with an opinion, <laughs> um, I think INFJs, uh, like myself, by the way, um, do need to door slam, even if it was like, you were suggesting that a 100% healthy INFJ, if there is a, ever such a thing, right, um, wouldn't, wouldn't need to door slam or implying that, right? Um, and I'm saying, I think we do, because, for example, I'm thinking of um, a friendship I have where, I've thought about door slamming someone for, you know, a lot of like across our friendship at different points, but our friendship is still quite healthy. Like, I don't feel like it is a host parasite situation. Um, I'm just wondering if it is just the INFJ, really like the idealism of an INFJ that keeps them going for so long, as you say, and how and whether that means the door slam is like the INFJ's ultimatum in that sense in that like yes it's necessary because INFJs are so idealistic they hold on for too long and I'm wondering if it is um, a sign of a healthy INFJ to be able to know when something's going on for too long or whether that's just normal. All right thanks for that question so this is going back to the INFJ door slam video I made so this is basically would a healthy INFJ need to door slam people? I've been thinking about it since I made that video. And by the way, I didn't state it as a fact. I, it was more of a question. Would a, a healthy INFJ need to door slam people? The more I think about this, the more I'm convinced, though, that a healthy INFJ would not, first of all, expect something out of a person that, that can't satisfy that. So here's a person, you're like, I must get this type of relationship out of this person. I must you know, achieve this relationship goal. This person is not behaving in the right way. So I'm going to try and try and invest and try to get this, whatever the definition of that relationship is that that person wants. And then one day they realize they can't get it and they've invested for too long. They've tried too hard and then they, they're just so overwhelmed. and It's like this emotional overwhelm and they leave and the door slam happens. 
I can't help but think if you were a healthy person, first of all, you would have reasonable expectations of this person. At the very beginning of the relationship, you'd be able to identify, okay, this person is capable of X. I'm not going to try to demand Y out of them. So you immediately have some healthy boundaries on yourself of what to expect. All right, so here's an example about INTJs. I have a few INTJs in my life, and it's something that I've realized about all of them. It's almost the most stereotypical personality, in my opinion. Like, these INTJs, I can see them from a mile away now. But it seems like INTJs can be incredibly smart, incredibly intellectual, but when it comes to emotional things, it's very hard to get them to open up. And if you actually try to force that on them, they can just get like kind of ragey is what I've noticed. Like they really don't like when you try to dig out their emotions or it's almost like they don't like to be questioned of their motives too. And there was a number of things I've noticed about INTJs. At this point in my life, you know, I, I had a best friend from the time I was 13 until a few years ago um, that was an INTJ. We were in high school basically inseparable but, you know, through my 20s into my early 30s, like, the problems grew, right? Because here he was calling me his best friend. And then I would go, well, a best friend is this. So why aren't you behaving like a best friend, right? And eventually this relationship kind of blew up and broke down in this kind of door slam situation. And when I look back at it, if I had known about this personality stuff earlier and that maybe I can't expect this much out of this person, it never would have got to that blow up stage because my expectations would be managed. I would place some boundaries around myself about what I'm gonna expect from this person. And to be honest, that might mean backing off and not calling this person my best friend. He still might call me his best friend, but I might not call him my best friend and I need to be okay with that because I'm never gonna be able to get what I want for a best friend relationship out of this person. So going back to a kind of healthy INFJ door slam, I think maybe one situation where it might be unavoidable is where maybe you weren't completely healthy or maybe it was this old relationship or like, let's say you were in a really unhealthy place and you got married and it's this sort of toxic relationship and you spend 10, 15 years in this relationship and then you slowly become healthy, but now you're kind of locked into this relationship. And the, a romantic relationship, you know, you usually, in most people's opinion, you only really get one, right? So it's not like, well, I'm gonna, you know, go over here and get this from a different romantic partner. Usually you have one. And so the romantic relationship seems like one thing where maybe it might be unavoidable to door slam now and then because an INFJ, anyway, will invest in that relationship and try to fix it, try to win it back, try to get this person to understand, try to create emotional intimacy, try to create communication and acceptance, and they will try hard for a long time. And if it doesn't work, then it can kind of result in this door slam situation because I don't know if it's really possible to manage your expectations in a romantic relationship I know that I don't think I could do that. I know that if I'm going to have a romantic relationship, I want five out of five pillars. Like from my five pillars of relationship video, I want emotional intimacy. I want intellectual connection. I want amazing physical connection. I want shared interest. I want, you know, values. I want understanding, acceptance, communication. And if, if I have those things, then I'm great in a relationship. But if I don't have those things, 
I don't want to compromise, especially if it's like a two out of five. So that creates an awkward situation. What if you get into a relationship when you're unhealthy and then over time you become healthy and now you're still in this relationship? If it's just a, a friendship, it's no big deal, right? You can kind of just slowly back off. But a romantic relationship is maybe one area where you can't just slowly back off from your romantic partner. You either build it or you end it. So maybe that's one place where the door slam is inevitable. Not sure. All right, next question here. Hello, Clay. This is Lama Chama from Wildmere Beach, USA. I have a question about your door slam video. Yeah, most people end relationships. It's normal and healthy to emotionally or physically disconnect from those that disappoint, frustrate, or hurt you. But why call it a door slam? What what is the real difference between breaking up with someone and the INFJ door slam? Is it just how fast the INFJ can go from thinking, I can make this relationship work, to realizing that this person is fundamentally flawed in a relationship of mutual vulnerability is impossible? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. All right. So another question about the door slam. I think the main difference between like breaking up with a person and door slamming or maybe ending a friendship that wasn't healthy and door slamming is door slamming is this, it's the suddenness and the harshness of it. And it only happens for people who are obsessed with trying to fix it, first of all. Like, you know, you take an INTJ, I don't even know if it's possible for them to door slam because they're just sort of, they would never invest to that level in the first place. They would just kind of back off and whatever, let it happen and it would just get distant and, you know, who knows, right? But an INFJ will try to fix that. And, you know, a lot of our thought processes, our, you know, our intuition, everything is going into this relationship and it's, it's exhausting. You can't keep it up forever. Meanwhile, the other person might see that as almost like a sign of love. Like, look at how much this person loves me. They're trying so hard. Look at all these things they're doing for me. So it's this complete misunderstanding where one person is trying to fix it. The other person is sort of not getting that. And then one day, you know, the rubber band has been stretched and then it snaps and it's this sudden cold reaction where it's just you shut off and the INFJ almost goes into like this cold recluse mode. And I think that's why it can be quite hurtful to the other person. They don't even know what's going on. It's like here's this person that they're used to behaving in a certain way and then suddenly they are so cold, they are so detached, they are not interested in trying anymore. And then the problem is, is that these people now go, oh, I guess that person was serious when they were trying to fix this problem. Okay, I'm, I'm willing to try now. I'm willing to try to fix this. And it's like, it's too late. And I think that's the difference with a door slam is a door slam, it's like the negotiation is over and it's done. It is a 180 turn where a normal relationship, you know, if you sort of start getting distant or you just back off or you break up in a healthy way, you're like, you know what? I just don't think this is working, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't have that harsh quality to it. So I think that really is the difference. All right, next question is from Grace. Hi, Clay. Hope you're doing well. I just watched your video today about why you decided to leave the Christian faith. And I just have some questions for you, and they're related to ethics and morality. Uh, so I myself am a Christian, but I'm also interested in philosophy. And I like to ask my non-Christian friends about 
um, just their views and their perspectives of morality and ethics. And one specific question that I often pose to them is, um, do you believe that morality or maybe even just one moral point um, is universal? So do you believe that there are things out there that are so um, good or so bad that they are that way at a universal scale? Um, so is there something out there like, um, I don't know, um, I guess child abuse really comes to mind for me. Um, is there something out there where um, that calls you into really questioning if morality can be subjective or if this certain thing is so true that it has to be true at a universal scale? So that was a lot, but that is my question for you. Thank you. All right. So thanks for that question. And I think I understand really the, the reason that you're asking this question, probably because I've asked this exact question to many different people. Uh, when I was a Christian, I used to ask it to atheists. Um, I still am interested, even though at this point, I have no reason to really believe that Christianity is true. But there's still this question of morals, right? And where do they come from? It seems in general, Christians believe that they're almost catching atheists in a contradiction when they ask this question. Because it's almost like, well, do you believe in right and wrong on an absolute level, right? And then if the atheist says yes, then the Christians almost feel like they've caught them because it's like, well, where do those morals come from? How do you know that this is right and this is wrong? If it's only survival of the fittest and evolution, how do you explain that? I think there's a lot of misconceptions that Christians have about people who don't believe. This is one of them for sure. So do I believe that child abuse is wrong? I, of course, would believe that child abuse is wrong. You know, if you come from a religious point of view, it's very clear why that's wrong. It's because you're told it's wrong. And that, that's, really, that's really all there is to it. You're, the God basically tells you something or imprints something in you to know that certain things are right or wrong. But, you know, let's say there isn't a God for a moment. Is there a reason why that would be right or wrong without a God? I think a lot of Christians would say, no, there's no reason. You can't say that that's right or wrong. So I think without a God, the explanation is generally, this. it comes back to well-being. And all species, all groups of species, so like let's say you've got a a group of humans, like 10,000 years ago, you know, hunter-gatherer society. It really, what is the point of any living creature? The point is to, first of all, survive. The second thing would be to thrive in some way. So like, for example, with human beings in hunter-gatherer society, you don't want to act in such a way that's going to end your life, obviously. Living in groups, um, thriving in communities is all part of that. We don't need a religious system to know that in a community, we live better, we thrive better, we survive better. So just by default, we and even other animals, why do wolves live in packs? Why do monkeys and apes, why do they kind of live in little communities and have leaders in those communities and will banish members for not behaving well? The reality is if you are in a community in the wild and you get banished, you know, you're not going to survive. So the reality is, is over time, we are the descendants of people who have survived 
naturally we are going to inherit the traits that allowed them to survive. And part of that is living in community and kind of following the rules that will you know, guarantee survival or at least help guarantee survival. So all that being said, with something like child abuse, there's a f complete evolutionary explanation of why that is considered wrong. Because it is going against survival. If you are abused, you will grow up damaged. You aren't going to be as healthy, let's say. I mean, there's all kinds of things I could say about that. But in general, I think it's obvious to say that if you are abused, it is bad for the person being abused. It's bad for the person doing the abusing because now they will probably be banished from that community. It is bad for the parent because they will no longer be able to, you know, have this healthy child to pass on their genetic material. So from that perspective, I think it's really easy. It goes against well-being. And that's why some people like Sam Harris talk about well-being as where morals come from. Every species has this definition of well-being. And then on the flip side, there's this worst possible case or worst possible outcome. If you sat there and imagined the worst possible thing for you or your species, and then you use that as a baseline for wrong or bad, you'd end up with this spectrum of good and bad, right? And so all that being said, I think that morals are a little bit subjective, and Christians don't want to admit that. I think they are subjective because it only human morals really only seem to exist within the context of humanity. If you step outside of humanity, like let's say now a lion eats a child, uh, is that morally wrong? Would you claim that that lion is now, you know, morally bad? No, I think most people would say that's a lion being a lion. So that's an interesting thing, right? Because basically once you step out of the context of humans, if a human hurt a child, a human child, everybody would think that was deplorable. But when the lion does it, it's like, well, it's just nature being nature, right? If a forest fire burns down and kills, you know, a bunch of animals, a bunch of baby deer and baby bunnies, like, is that... Is that morally wrong or is that just nature doing its thing? I think it's really hard to start to think about some of these things because it, it depends on whose perspective you're looking from. Are you looking from the lion's perspective? Are you looking from a human's perspective? So I guess all that to say, do I think that child abuse is wrong? Yes, and I believe that there are clear reasons why, both from a religious point of view and from like an evolutionary point of view. I think that you can make a case for either because it goes against one, it goes against well-being and your survival on the other hand, it goes against the religious moral code. But then once you step out of the context of humanity, I don't know if it's wrong anymore, to be honest. It's almost like at that point, it's just nature being nature. So is it subjective because of that? Um, not sure. All right, so just a couple notes here. I had um, a question from Shannon Summers. Her, kind of, her question kind of got cut off at the end, so I, I didn't include it because there was no real question. She, uh, there was a, some comments, and then it sounds like she got cut off at the end. So not trying to ignore you. I just didn't um, get that question. So there was a very long question from Laura. Um, it was actually a 24-minute long question. So I can't include that just because of how long it is. There's a reason why these questions are limited to 90 seconds, and that is because I would prefer if they were short and concise so I can play it and then answer the question. So my advice, if you would like to have your question included, would be to think about your question, try to you know, break it down and try to find the core of that question and say it within the 90 seconds and try not to go into multiple 
you know, audio recordings. There is one more question here from Rebecca that I won't play. I'll just read her question since it's quite simple. She was wondering if I could start a Discord chat for, I guess, my channel or for people who are interested in talking about this stuff. And I guess the answer is I could. Maybe I should do that. And if there's anybody else who's interested in that, I guess if I had enough people who are interested, then that probably makes sense to do. So if that's something that you would like to see, leave a comment below that you're interested in that and then um, kind of tally that up and see how many people are interested in a, a Discord situation. Anyway, that's all I got for today. Thanks very much for watching. Go leave me an audio question if you have questions about any of this stuff. Otherwise, I think in my next few videos, I've got some new ideas. I want to dive into um, sort of the basics of logic. You know, I'd like to do some videos on like what is a logical fallacy and how do you kind of eliminate that out of your life so that you're not walking around being a logical contradiction. So that's sort of next on my plate. Anyway, guys, thanks for watching. Hope you have a great day. Bye.